0: Today is uh, the last day of our church calendar. Funny that we don't follow the same calendar as the rest of, of uh, our country, but uh, the church follows a different calendar. And so today is the Feast of Christ the King. That's um, a holiday or a, a day that was implemented only in 1925, so fairly recently, and Pope Pius the Sixth instituted it. Uh, it's called the Feast of Christ the King, or the Feast of the King of the Universe. And that Pope, Pope Pius VI, was instituted in 1922. So that was, like, just shortly after World War I, right? And while the world seemed to be at peace, things weren't actually going all that well, right? Um, the war had been devastating to, to Europe, and then the Russian Revolution happened, and there was starvation and, and upheaval, and old systems were collapsing. People were struggling to find work, to find food and security. And so this day was, was, was instituted by the pope to remind people where their hope lay, not in world systems, not in uh, economics, but in Jesus. And for us, in the midst of housing costs that are crazy, right, wages that aren't keeping up with inflation, governments that seem to care more about filling their friends' pockets than feeding those who are hungry, maybe this day has some significance for us today. Jesus is King, not the Prime Minister, not the Premier, not even the President of the United States. Not even the King of England, who is, I guess, new. We're always going to be let down if that's who we put our hope in. If we try to place our hope in government, in man, in economics, we'll always be let down. Systems can never save us. So today we think about what it looks like to live in a world that is in upheaval while we celebrate Christ the King. But to to talk about kings, we kind of have to think about what a king is. And we have this idea of of king mostly from what we see in movies or, you know, our limited experience of the the monarchy, which isn't really all that prevalent anymore. But earthly kings have actually never been very good for people. Never. Even, even when the Hebrews asked for a king, this is what God says. God says through Samuel. It's in Samuel, 1 Samuel 2, 10 to 18. So Samuel passed on the Lord's warning to the people who were asking him for a king. This is how your king will reign over you. Samuel said, the king will draft your sons and assign them to his chariots and his charioteers, making them run before his chariots. Some will be generals and captains in his army, some will be forced to plow in his fields and harvest his crops, and some will make his weapons and chariot equipment. The king will take your daughters from you and force them to cook and bake and make perfumes for them. He will take away the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his own officials. He will take a tenth of your grain and your grape harvest and distribute it among his officers and attendants. He will take your male and female slaves and demand the finest of your cattle and donkeys for his own use. He will demand a tenth of your flocks, and you will be his slaves. When that day comes, you will beg for relief from this king or you are demanding, but then the Lord will not help you. That description of kings and rulers sounds very similar, doesn't it? So when we think of this idea of Christ the king, we're going to have to adjust our image of what that is. And there's a beautiful image of king, of Jesus as king versus the kings of the world, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, right? In in almost every country in the world, if you look this up on Wikipedia, because it's such a fabulous source of correct information, you can look it up, and there's a list of every country and how many equestrian statues there are. That's like a guy on a horse, I guess. That's when I looked it up, that's what it showed. Guy on a horse. So some dude on a war horse. They're everywhere. And it's always like a symbol of triumphant ruler. Um, like it's a, it's a pride thing. It seems to be this good thing. And it's interesting that at the same time Jesus rides his donkey to Jerusalem, it's likely that Pilate was riding a war horse on the opposite side of Jerusalem, coming in with parade and with fanfare and with um, pomp and splendor. In Luke 19.38, the people cry out, blessings on the Lord, or on the King, who comes in the name of the Lord. And you can see why the Pharisees were trying to keep the disciples quiet. They say, tell them to be quiet. And Jesus says, if they be quiet, the stones will cry out. But they're telling them to be quiet because they're afraid that there's people that are celebrating the Romans coming in, Pilate, they might hear it, and they might think that Jesus is the leader of a revolution, which I guess he was. He just didn't ride a war horse or parade military might. I, wondered, I wonder if it was actually reported. Do you think Pilate would just laugh at it? Like, who rides a donkey into town? And proclaims himself king. Isaiah nine six to seven says, "For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and his peace and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the Lord of his ans- from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity." The passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. Jesus, or kings make peace. They force peace. But Jesus the king is peace. He's the prince of peace, right? Earthly kings or rulers, they try to force it on us. They force peace. They squash dissenters. They put down rebellion. They spend lots of money in forcing peace but the king of the universe is peace. Have you ever met anyone who's a person of peace? You know that person that when you're around them, everything just seems calm and good. I hear people saying people's, I see people saying people's names. I think I saw the name Gavin over there somewhere. Gavin is like that. Being around Gavin, he's a peaceful person. It just comes out of him. It's a small picture of what the presence of Jesus the King gives us. He doesn't have to fight for peace because he is peace. And this is why he doesn't come with heaven's armies to destroy the oppressors. We know that violence can never create peace even though we keep trying. So Jesus comes to create peace not at the expense of others... He brings peace in the middle of oppression. He rides into the war zone, not on a tank, but in a pinto. Some of you probably don't know what that is. It's kind of a laughable image, right? Because we've been conditioned to believe that force is the only way to right wrong things. I wonder if that conditioning is why, in the name of this king, this prince of peace, the church has killed thousands of heretics, They've taken land from savages. They've removed children from their families. And all the while, Jesus is riding the donkey. I've wondered, we, we talked about this, this verse a couple of weeks ago, I've wondered if there's something in this verse, Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. Do we see Jesus like an earthly king and yell, Lord, Lord, and then Jesus says, but you call me to do violence to others, to expand your wealth will you oppress workers. And that's just not the kind of king I am. I ride a donkey. In Matthew 5, 1 to 12, Jesus unpacks what his reign looks like. And I'm reading from The Voice. I don't know if we actually have that version. I'm reading, no, we don't have that. So I'm reading from The Voice. It'll be similar. It's Matthew 5, 1 to 12. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn for, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad, for a great reward awaits you in heaven and remember the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. When we look at these statements that that Jesus says, we can wonder, instead of simply comforting those that mourn, why doesn't God simply remove the source of the mourning, of the pain, of the suffering? Or why doesn't God take away the need for hunger and thirst for justice? Or why doesn't God persecute those who hurt his people. I wonder if that can be answered by remembering that Jesus rides a donkey. When Martin Luther King Jr. won the Peace Prize in 1964, he spoke these words. Violence as a way of achieving racial justice is both impractical and immoral. I am not unmindful of the fact that violence often brings about momentary results. Nations have frequently won their independence in battle. But in spite of temporary victories, violence never brings permanent peace. It solves no social problem. It merely creates new and more complicated ones. Violence is impractical because it is a descending spiral ending in destruction for all. It is immoral because it seeks to humiliate the opponent rather than win his understanding. It seeks to annihilate rather than convert. Violence is immoral because it thrives on hatred rather than love. It destroys community and makes brotherhood impossible. It leaves society in monologue rather than in dialogue. Violence ends up defeating itself. So when we proclaim Christ the King, we change our bearings. We can no longer look to violence or power or privilege. We don't put our trust in governments to save us or to Wall Street for our well-being, or to our belongings, our houses, our cars, or guitars. Wait, We proclaim the one who rides the donkey. And this must change the way that we act with people who disagree with us. It should. Do we ride a donkey into disagreement, or do we ride a war horse? It should change how we think of evangelism which has become a terrible word for most of the world. It seems to me that much of our evangelical efforts have been on the back of a warhorse. In many ways, we are a people in exile, right? We worship this king of the universe, this king, Jesus the king. But we live in a land that is obviously not heaven. So how do we live in this land? How do we proclaim the king while we long for the kingdom of peace? Jeremiah 29, 5 to 6 says, This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all the captives he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem Build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that you may have many grandchildren. Multiply, do not dwindle away and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray the, to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. Is it, isn't that powerful? In the middle of exile, find home. In the middle of exile, find home. Build homes and plan to stay. God's people had a promised land. They did not want to be in Babylon. Babylon. He says plant gardens and eat the food they produce. Multiply, do not dwindle away. So God calls the exiles, the, those in exile, to his original plan, to be fruitful, to eat of the trees, to step out of economic systems that we have worshipped. If it wasn't evident before recent, before now, we can easily see how food economics are oppressive. Rising food pr- costs Mean that those who have little have even less and because land is expensive those who have little have little or no opportunity to create gardens land's expensive and god has always instructed his people to move away from oppressive economics leviticus 99 this is you know near the beginning Leviticus 19.9, When you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields, and do not pick up what the harvesters drop. It is the same with your grape crop. Do not strip every last bunch of grapes from the vine, and do not pick up the grapes that fall to the ground. Leave them for the poor and the foreigners living among you. I am the Lord your God. Jesus is calling us out of these economic oppressions. The call to multiply is the same call in Genesis, to be fruitful and multiply. Now, I love later on that Paul picks this up as a single person, because we automatically think be fruitful and multiply means to have lots of children. And the Dutch, the the Christian Reformed Church is doing an excellent job of that. We should commend them. but Paul, who is a single person, he picks up on it and he realizes that being fruitful and, being multi- and multiplying isn't just about having children, but about exhibiting the characteristics of the king. He calls them the fruits of the spirit. Be fruitful and multiply. Multiply patience. The last thing the prophet says is to work for the shalom of the city where I have sent you into exile. Peace is the word that was used in the original um, passage I, I, I read. Jeremiah calls the people of God to work for the shalom of the city therein. That's how you proclaim the one on the donkey king. Sh- shalom means more than peace, right? It means harmony, wholeness, prosperity, tranquility, and completeness. It's not just peace. There's more to it. And when we proclaim Christ the king, we follow the king on the donkey wherever we are, whether we're in exile or whether we're at home. We work for the well-being of those around us, showing the fruit of the one we follow, standing against economic oppression. Do you see the king seated on the donkey? He calls you to follow him to his feast. Come, gather at his table, a feast of love, a table set before you by the creator of all things. Come and eat of the goodness of God. Participate in what he's doing. Come to the table as the king shows us, humble and meek, not with bravado that we are right with God, but with the knowledge that we do not deserve to be at his table. We beat our chests and say, we do not deserve this, And yet we're welcome anyway. Come to the table where power is turned upside down, where laying down your life is strength and taking up arms is weakness. Eat of the gifts that God gives us, the gift of bread, food for the poor, simple food to be shared with all. Be reminded that your King prayed, give us this day our daily bread, and the gift of wine the cup of the rich. But this cup is to be shared, not hoarded. Pass it around. These two elements, the king calls you to remember. Remember that simple things can be transformed into beautiful things. In a minute, I'm going to invite you to come, if, if you're willing, to come and, and take one of these communion packages. And we'll take it together. Please wait till we're gonna all take it at the same time if, if that's okay with you. Holy mystery that is holy love, you are beyond complete knowledge, above perfect description. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, source of life, living word, and bond of love. You are creative and self-giving, generously moving. In all the near and distant corners of the universe, universe, nothing exists that does not find its source in you. Even when we turn away from you, you are with us. Your presence never fails us. Your gifts of hope and new life transform us. We praise you for Jesus Christ, eternal as your love, our bond to one another. We rejoice with all your people of every time and place, and with angels and archangels to proclaim the glory of your name. In sharing this meal, We live out the mystery of our faith. We proclaim Christ the King. Holy mystery, God, we call on you to transform these familiar things as you continually transform the world around us. Bless this bread and this cup, the wheat and the grape, the farmer and the harvest, the seed and the sower, so that in sharing of these simple elements in community, we may taste and see of your goodness, so that we may catch a glimpse of what it is to be in communion with you and with one another. So let us come to the table hoping, expecting to be filled with right relationship, with justice, eager to find unity with God and with each other. Let us come open to receiving God's blessing. Come forward and receive the elements. On the night he would be arrested, he got together with his friends. Even though there was danger and confusion, they gathered to sit across the table from each other to see and be seen. As they gathered in the upper room, Jesus took the bread. He broke it, gave thanks, and passed it to his friends. Take, eat, and remember. And when they had finished eating, Jesus took the cup. This is a new covenant, a promise of my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sin. Drink and remember. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for these gifts, these symbols of transformation. May we be changed by remembering your incredible love your eternal goodness and your promise to make all things new and your promise to fill all things with yourself. And now we pray a blessing on us as we go. May God keep you and bless you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. Give you peace. Amen.